Are you a perfectionist? Got to get everything right? Really bugs you when other people don't have everything right? You just wish you could fix it all? The man we know as the Apostle Paul had a perfect pedigree. And it's his perfection we're focusing on today. Listen as he describes it in Philippians chapter 3, verse 4 and 5 and 6. And if anyone else has reason to be confident in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, a member of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. And I'm the oldest of four, and that makes me better. Oh, that's me, I'm sorry. <laughs> think, think, think of this man, how well prepared he was to become a leader in the young church. He describes himself as circumcised according to the law. This, this was an interesting time in Jewish history. And there were, uh, Jews were living in the Holy Land, but they were also spread throughout the Roman and Greek world. And uh, there was a, a debate among Jews as to how much you ought to be a Jew in the outside world. I think it's still going on today. Some Jews like Orthodox Jews in, this, in New York City that wear those little things and hats and everything. They want to show how Jewish they are, but others kind of want to hide it. Well, that was true in the first century as well. And Paul grew up in Asia Minor, and that was part of the Greek world, and he was in a city, it was a commercial city, it was a place where you might want to hide. But no, Paul's family wasn't like that. He was circumcised according to the law. That is, the precision says on the eighth day according to the law. So there's that, that sense that he, he did everything right even before he made choices. And then it says he was born a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Yeah, he was a Jewish Jew. He was a guy who wanted you to know it. And then it says he was of the tribe of Benjamin. You, you may not know this, but by the first century, most Jews could not tell you what tribe they were from. And this is very unusual for Paul's pedigree to be that clear. And that was one of the 12 tribes. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. And he was um, trained under Gamaliel. It says in another scripture that he studied in Jerusalem. We believe Paul had some family in Jerusalem. And when he was a boy, he went to live with them and studied in the school of a famous rabbi by the name of Gamaliel. And he was a Pharisee, and Paul calls himself in another place a Pharisee of the Pharisees. And Gamaliel was a very strict Jewish teacher, Jewish rabbi. The school of Hillel was known for more liberal uh, 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 assimilation kind of ideas, but the school of Gamaliel was where you went if you really wanted to be a Pharisaic Jew. And Pharisee means I keep all the laws. 
the Pharisees were so precise about this that they had what they call fences. And the fences, well, don't do this because the law you might break is over here, but if you stop here, you're not going to get close to breaking the law. So all of these fences were set up so that you could really, really, really be a Pharisee. So he calls himself a Pharisee of the Pharisees. And that means his parents and grandparents were also in that tradition. And this meant that he was very zealous for his Judaism, but he was just not keeping the law. We read about him that he was an activist, that he got he, he, he promoted Judaism to others. He was like an evangelist. And then when this church got started, he, he, he didn't want to see that happen because that was a false teaching. And so he got letters from official people that allowed him to go in and break up Christian meetings and stuff. As a young Pharisee, that's what he did. And he, brought up, he was brought up in a Gentile society in Tarsus and in that Gentile society, he really expressed his Pharisaism. So this is the Apostle Paul. Ironically, at one point in his life, remember he was being arrested, and he said, uh, I demand my rights as a Roman citizen. Now, there were not many Jews who were Roman citizens. Roman citizenship meant you were a citizen of the city of Rome, which was also the empire, but people who lived in other parts of the world weren't Roman citizens unless they had done something or their family had done something. Apparently, Paul's family, even though they were very strict Pharisaic Jews, had, uh, had done something that was very honorable and noteworthy, and they were given honorary citizenship of Rome. And Paul had that. Man, how perfect can you be? And he said... If I have all of these things, that gives me confidence in the flesh. So as far as his flesh was concerned, he had every reason to be confident that he was on the right side. He was a perfection, perfectionist, and when he looked at himself, he said, pretty good work. And that's the Apostle Paul. Now, if there's ever a person prepared for God to use him, that's the man. But he was too perfect. He was too perfect for God to use. So he had to have a meltdown. He had to experience a meltdown, which fits into our series that we're talking about now, biblical meltdowns. Some of the meltdowns we looked at were kind of people falling apart, maybe destructive meltdowns. But in Paul's case, this was a constructive meltdown. It had to happen for him to be useful for the Lord. And we're going to read about the experience in Acts chapter 9 of how this meltdown came to Paul. He describes it, but Luke describes it in the book of Acts at length. But then Paul uh, later on in his sermons talked about this incident as well. So we're going to read from Acts chapter 9 beginning verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul, now this is right after the stoning of Stephen. And remember, Paul is mentioned, he was then called Saul. His name was changed when he became a Christian. 
But at the stoning of Stephen, the first martyr in the name of Christ, Saul was standing there holding the clothes of the guys who were throwing the rocks. And he was there rejoicing in that martyrdom of Stephen. Meanwhile, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus. Damascus is way up there in Syria. That was hundreds of miles away. But he wanted to be a, a, a he, he had heard the church was opening up in Damascus and he wanted to stamp that out. So he got letters that gave him authority and so that if, if he found any who belonged to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. He had the authority to do that. And he was perfectly equipped to do that because he was Mr. Pharisee. If anybody stopped him and questioned him, he's also a Roman citizen. This man had it all. Now, verse 3. As he was going along and approaching Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground. He heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? The reply came, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. I'm persecuting these people. But the voice said, I am Jesus. I'm the one you're persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. Paul, he was helpless. The man who had it all couldn't help himself. The men who were traveling with him, verse 7, stood speechless because they heard the voice but saw no one. So they heard, but they didn't see the great light. So the great light only affected Saul. Verse 8, Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. He was blind. So they led him by the hand. This is the man who had everything. This is the guy who had it all together, and he was dependent on others to lead him, and they brought him into Damascus. Three days he was without sight. He neither ate nor drank. What, this was not going to be a, a quick cure. He was reduced to total helplessness, and he left there to stagnate. Now there was a disciple, verse 10, in Damascus, a Christian in Damascus, by the name of Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, uh, come in and uh, come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he's done to your saints in Jerusalem, and here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who invoke your name. <laughs> and you want me to go to him? But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is an instrument whom I have chosen. This helpless, blind, blubbering guy who totally lost his appetite, he was going to be an instrument of God, chosen to bring my name before Gentiles and kings 
and before the people of Israel. I myself will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So he's not going to just restore everything. He's going to have to go through a lot of things. He answered, and let's look at verse 11. The Lord said to him, get up and go to the street called Straight. The Lord speaking uh, to Ananias. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. At this moment, he is praying. And he has seen, I've got uh, some messed up language here, so I'm going to just have to, and I can't read that. <laughs> and so, verse 18. And immediately, something like scales, let me read verse 17. So Ananias went, entered the house. He laid his hands on Saul and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on your way here has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately, something like scales, note the emphasis on how, how physical this is, how real, how tangible. Something like scales fell from his eyes and his sight was restored. Then he got up and was baptized, almost like it happened right away. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. For several days, he was with the disciples of Damascus. See, there's that time of healing, of restoration that had to come because he was reduced to total helplessness. And verse 20, immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the son of God. We read that after that, he went to Jerusalem, but the people in Jerusalem and the church, they were afraid of him. And then he went into Arabia, into the desert for a time of continual curing and healing, which may have lasted about three years. So Paul's restoration after the meltdown, whatever God was going to now turn him into, took some time. There's no immediate miracle, though the sight was an immediate miracle. Now let's go back to the Bible passage we started with in Philippians chapter 3, and we'll read a few more verses. If anyone else has reason to be confident in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day, a member of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blamed us. Now going on. Yet, whatever gains I had, all my perfectionism, Whatever gains I had, these I have come to regard as loss because of Christ. More than that, I regard everything as loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. I have put aside all else, counting it worth less than nothing in order that I can have Christ. Notice, he talks about in verse 7, Whatever gains I had, I had to regard as loss. Verse 8, he builds on that. Everything, I counted everything as loss. There's nothing I could take credit for. And then that final verse ups the ante even farther. I have put aside all else, counting it worth less than nothing in order that it can have Christ. Now I've got to tell you, that phrase, less than nothing, is a polite translation. 
If you look in other modern translations, you will find this. I counted it as garbage. One of them says, I considered them as filth. One counted them as rubbish. And our King James Version says, count them but dung. We don't use that word a lot. But you know, when I was uh, looking at this text and, and uh, studying it, I had had some German behind me, and uh, I, I read a, uh, something about Martin Luther. You remember one of Luther's things when he stood, not, not Martin Luther King, but Martin Luther, 1500s. And when he confronted the Catholic Church, he said, this is not a top-down. Revelation doesn't come from them. It comes from the Bible, the Word. Sola Scriptura is what we learn in Latin. The Scripture alone, that's what he emphasized. But it's interesting, that meant, Luther, we had to get the Scripture in a language people could understand. So Luther did his own translation in the German Bible of the, of the Bible, which is really quite quite surprisingly good and has lasted till today, although it's been modernized. But in this translation, Luther translated that phrase, less than nothing, as an ein Haufen Mist. Oh, I see all you Germans are. All right. Ein Haufen Mist. And I looked that up in the German, and I don't know whether you can say this in church. It means a load of crap. So the, the perfumed Latin kind of cleans it up a bit. But Luther got right to it. All of your righteousness, all of your perfection, all that good stuff stinks up the place. And it's a strong statement by Paul. All your stellar qualities. So here is our perfectionist friend. He's doing what's natural. He, he, he's going to get those pieces of grass even. But maybe by God's grace, he'll learn about power mowers. And maybe it's not perfect, but does the job pretty quickly, right? Now, we used to, for 45 years or so, we owned a home on Sierra Madre Boulevard. And uh, our front yard was presentable. Our backyard over the years, we just didn't do much with it. It had some nice space and a couple of nice trees, but there was no lawn back there. Except, you know, in the springtime, when, uh, when there had been some winter rains, there was a pseudo lawn. It was, a, it was just a bunch of weeds that popped up. But if you cut them, it looked like a lawn. It lasted for about two weeks, right? So there was one year that was really, really rainy, similar to this year. I think it's about 15 years ago. And that year, man, those weeds went up. And it went up so fast in the spring, the weeds grew so fast that the power mower was, you know, not going to do it, you know. And Judy solved the problem. Judy hired some sheep. Yeah, she did that. And there were, I think, like seven sheep, and they had two goats that accompanied them. Evidently, they calmed the sheep. And this person brought it in, and, and they came in, and wow, they're good. They're really good. 
and it was really a kind of kind of fun experience until a neighbor called the cops because it's illegal. <laughs> and uh, uh, a p couple of police officers came and said, "You have what?" And they came back and they just laughed. <laughs> but but Judy had to call and have the lady take him back. But you know they'd already done as good a job as that guy with his scissors. And and it's 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 really kind of hard to imagine that as much of a perfectionist as you are, you're no better than dumb sheep. That was our lesson. Now, Paul, I, I mean, the wonderful thing about this is that Paul ultimately used all those qualities, or I should say, God used all those qualities in the Apostle Paul. He used all the qualities that made him a great Pharisee. I mean, Paul was the one who, for the early church, fleshed out what it meant to live by grace and not by works. He knew about all that. He knew that the mitzvah that you do please God. But he was the one who, as a Pharisee, could say, yeah, but it's not enough. It's a half and mist. But Paul was the one who could reinterpret the law and apply it in the new life of the new church because he had all this rabbinic training. And he was the one who knew how to organize because, you know, he had organized persecution against the Christians. So now that he was a Christian and the Lord had kind of melted him down and then recast his perfection, now he was able to help organize the church, the local churches, the leadership, the ground rules for uh, how you manage a church and all the things that we depend even on in, even in our day. And still, he kept the focus on the gospel and didn't allow the law to overwhelm the gospel. Paul's perfectionism, his Pharisaic perfectionism, was used of God. Became, and, and, and yours can be too. But here's the thing. Paul had a reminder that he always carried around with him. Now, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he, sa he says this interesting thing. Therefore, to keep me from being too elated, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from being too elated. A thorn in the flesh. So he says, um, God gave this to him through, Satan never has absolute control, right? He, he just, he's just an agent for accomplishing God's will. God never lets him, his leash get too long. But to keep me from being too elated, gave me this thorn in the flesh. What was that? Three times I appealed to the Lord about this, that it would leave me. Some people say it proves he was married. I don't think so. <laughs> but he said to me, the Lord said to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is made perfect in weakness. In Galatians, in chapter 4, verse 13, he says, you know, this is Paul's letter to the Galatians, you know that it was because of a physical infirmity so now the thorn in the flesh is a physical infirmity 
that I first announced the gospel to you. Though my condition put you to a test, you did not scorn or despise me. So there's something about Paul's thorn in the flesh that made people kind of pull away from him. But you welcomed me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What has become the goodwill, what has become of the goodwill you felt? For I testify that had it been possible, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. Well, why, why, why is that the example he used? In Galatians chapter 6, verse 11, Paul writes to the Galatians, See with what large letters, see what large letters I make when I'm writing in my own hand. And if you look at the Greek of that, it means the actual letters he was writing with were large. And you didn't, it was not easy to come across something to write on. You couldn't go just buy a, a pad of paper. So you, you, you didn't write large, you wrote small. But Paul found himself having to write large. From these, from these passages, there are a, a number of scholars, and maybe the majority of scholars, though we're not told, that believe that Paul's thorn in the flesh had to do with his eyesight. And that maybe there was a, a, a leftover, not quite healed, about Paul. Maybe he had a, an eye injury that connected with that vision. Or maybe subsequent, but there was something about his ability to see that was his thorn in the flesh. And for him, that was a reminder of how the Lord brought him down. It's interesting to to study this and we don't have all the answers but what about you have, is there some thorn in the flesh that kind of you wish you could get rid of no that's not a thorn yeah maybe it is a lady called me cold this week I don't know who she was she just said dialed the church phone and, and said I've been um, bothered by something and she said I have something in my past I know the Lord's forgiven me I know the Lord's forgiven me but people gossip about it and uh, and that really bothers me and we talked about it a little bit never got into what was bothering her she went out of her way to tell me that it was not something that hurt other people so she wanted you know, I, I didn't ask a lot of questions, and, but it was the gossiping that kept it alive in her mind. And I had just been studying this, and so I said, that sounds a little bit like the Apostle Paul, that thorn in the flesh that he had, you know? And she says, yeah, when it comes up, I feel guilty all over again. Oh, I really, that really kind of resonated with me. And I said, maybe th th that's the experience that the Lord has given to us. And I suggest there that maybe the gossip is a thorn in your flesh that the Lord allows to be there so that you don't forget how much you owe to him and how, how wonderful that forgiveness is. If God thought perfectionist Paul needed a thorn in the flesh, maybe perfectionist you does do as well. And yet, your perfectionism, which if you, if, if you don't rein it in, 
it can, it can drive you crazy. You can become obsessive, compulsive, and you can just lock yourself into a little box and, and, and nothing is right in your life. That happens to people. But, but if you can see your perfectionism as a gift from God, and then you allow him to melt you down, he may be able to use you the way he used the Apostle Paul. And he may be able to use your perfectionism. But as long as you're depending on your perfectionism, it'll never lead you anywhere. It's just a pile of junk. When you allow him, when you learn to depend on him, then all of that can be transformed melted, poured into new containers, and made into something that God can use. Ultimately, there's only one perfectionist, and that's God. Until we realize that, we're not ready to use the gifts he's given to us. So, if there's kind of a meltdown feeling in your life now, don't fight it. It may be the work of the Lord, Open yourself. Don't say, yes, Lord, but I have this and this and this. None of that works. None of that works. You've got to be totally helpless. Yeah. Totally helpless. And then the Lord begins to lift you up. Amen. Let's bow. Our Father, we thank you for this example of, of greatness that can become greatness against you unless your grace takes over. Thank you for Paul, all he did. He's a gift to the whole church of all time, and we praise you for him. But this is our day, Lord. We don't want to stand in the way with ourselves, with our confidence in the flesh. Help us, Lord, to submit whatever it takes to get to the place where our self-aggrandizement gives way to our praise of you and then shine through us in any way you want. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.